Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gehanna, Ohio, and we exist to help people find and follow God. To find out more about our church, to join a group, or to give online, visit threecreekschurch.com. In this series, we're diving into the story of Esther. Esther is the only book of the Bible in which the name of God isn't written. But the power of God, the presence of God, and the providence of God are clearly on display. Thanks for tuning in to Providence, the story of Esther. Good morning, everybody. My name is Joel, and I get to be the pastor here at Three Creeks. And if you are uh, a regular, what's up? Welcome back. And if you're new, we just want to say welcome. We get real excited when uh, we see some new faces around here because we're on, a, we're on a mission, like they said, to help people to find and follow God. And so wherever you're at on that spiritual journey, if you've been to church a thousand times or this is your first time, we just want to say hi and welcome. We're glad that you are here. Uh, like Morgan just said, we are in week three of a series in the book of Esther. And I have personally enjoyed weeks one and two. I hope that uh, if, you, if you've been here, I hope that you've enjoyed them. If you haven't been here, you can listen to it or watch it on all the, all the things, all the ways that you listen and watch things. And uh, this has been a really cool series. And so today, uh, I guess in, in week one, we really focus on the whole story. Last week, we focused on Esther and King Xerxes and this bold move of courage where she went into the, into the king's throne room, essentially, and, and he forgave her, and, and, and she really was an instrument used by God to help serve and save her people. And today, we're going to focus on two more obscure characters in the story of Esther. Let me, uh, let me just read you a couple things, that, that, uh, a couple verses from the Bible, and see if you can catch a theme. Solomon wrote in Proverbs that pride ends in humiliation while humility brings honor. And then Peter, a couple hundred years later, Jesus' closest disciple, he wrote in 1 Peter, he said, Humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time God will lift you up in honor. And James, who is Jesus' half-brother, says in James chapter 4, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Are you catching a theme so far? And then Jesus himself said in Matthew and in Luke, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Try to lift yourself up, you're going to be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is what Jesus said. It's kind of an upside-down way of thinking, but a lot of things that Jesus said at the time, people thought, oh, that's kind of an upside-down way of thinking. But this is what Jesus said. He said, exalt yourself, lift yourself up. You're going to be humbled. Humble yourself. Put yourself below others. Think about other people. Ooh, I will lift you up. So, obviously, I think you, you caught the theme of the four verses, and by the way, there's a hundred more that say the same thing in the Bible. But the question I have today is, do you believe that it's true? Do you believe that that is actually true? As it plays itself out in your life and in the lives of the people around you, does it feel like the humble people are winning? Are they the ones being lifted up? Or, or from time to time, do you think, man, why, why are they arrogant? Why are they seemingly ahead of me when I try to be humble? Is there anything more unattractive than pride? And is there anything more prevalent 
in us than pride. It's, it's a funny thing to talk about pride, really for two reasons. The first is, who needs to hear a message about pride? Proud people. And who is least likely to hear this and think it's for them? Also proud people. So that's, that's, that's a little tension. The other thing about teaching about pride is that I am, I am confident that the most prideful person in the room is me. I... <laughs> She agrees. <laughs> I, am, I am certain of it. That the most prideful person in the room, you're looking at him. So it, it, it's like, this, isn't, this shouldn't work. We should find a humble person to teach us how to be humble. But you have me. I'm going to give a 30-minute message about humility and pride and how we see it in the book of Esther and I think maybe once or twice you might have this moment of like, oh man, maybe there is that pride in my life too. I've had a whole week to think about how prideful I am. The list is in the hundreds of thoughts that I've had that I'm like, man, that is just, that's because of pride in my life. And so despite the fact that you are proud and may not hear this, and despite the fact that I'm prouder than you and I'm the one talking, I'm going to trust that maybe God will move through the book of Esther and that we all could maybe identify some areas in our life where like, ah, that is motivated by pride. And that we together could be humble and then when God wants to, that he could, he could be the one that lifts us up and we don't got to keep lifting ourselves up. Y'all good with that? Let's go to Esther chapter 3. And I'm going to set the stage. And while you're making, making your way there, I want to quote... Uh, C.S. Lewis, who I'm going to quote him a couple times because he writes about pride unlike anyone else. Let me, let me quote what C.S. Lewis says about pride. There is one vice. There's one vice of which no person in the world is free. And it's pride. Which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it. Oh, and I do. You ever see an arrogant person? Oh, how proud. It's disgusting and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. That is pride. It's, this, it's the carbon monoxide of sin. It's sneaky. You don't even care. And it kills us. In the book of Esther, what we're going to find out is that we see one person who embodies pride to the full. And that person's name is Haman, the king's right-hand man, his prime minister. And we see another person in the book of Esther, Esther's cousin Mordecai. And he is this model of humility. In Esther chapter 1 and 2, just in case you haven't been here, let me set the stage. In Esther 1 and 2, there's this rich, powerful, evil king named King Xerxes, the king of Persia. He throws these big parties, and at one of his parties, while he was drunk, he asks his queen Vashti, come on in here and present yourself to all of my friends. And she says, no. And he says, nobody's going to turn me down. I, and he divorces Queen Vashti. Boom. Just divorces her. They, they come up with this evil plan. They gather 400 women from all the provinces. Who can be the next queen for King Xerxes? And this Jewish girl named Esther, who was an orphan, who was raised by her cousin, somehow, when she comes before the king, it's actually because of her humility, if you actually read Esther chapter 2, 
The king finds that to be attractive and picks Esther. This orphan Jew is the queen, but she keeps her nationality a secret at the time. That's important for the story we're reading today. Nobody knows that she's a Jew. There's about 15 million Jews at this point in the world, at this point in history, and they're scattered all over the world. Many of them live underneath the rule of King Xerxes. And this is what happened in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. This is what it says. The words will be on the screen behind me if you don't got it in front of you. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. So he's essentially the prime minister, the king's right-hand man. And all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. Look at this. This is important. For so the king had commanded. The king had to command that. A couple observations on these two verses. The first one is that if Haman is the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, that would mean that he is a descendant of a king named Agag, who Agag was a, was a, a king, uh, he was a ruler over the Amalekites. And if you look at the Old Testament, if there's one people group that hates the Jews, it's the Amalekites. So Haman is a, just a product of his parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. They hate the Jews. Haman's out to get the Jews. Not a good guy. And Haman, you'll find in, in, in right here and going forward, that he is, he is obsessed with exalting himself. His aim is just to be higher than everybody else, essentially at all times. Even though he's number two in the kingdom, that, that's not even going to be enough for him. We're going to find out. Because look, in verse two, it says, for the king had commanded. He, the king had commanded everybody, when Haman walks around, you have to bow down to him. It's odd that the king would have to command that because in this culture, that was intuitive. That's just what people did. There was a rich person or even an older person in your family. It was, it was natural and intuitive to bow. It was like shaking hands with somebody in our culture. It's just, it's just what you do. Or, or I guess fist bumping now, but it's just what you do, right? And so when the king says, you guys, come on. I know you don't like him, essentially, but you still got to bow to Haman. It, it, that verse to me, it, Tim Keller says that he thinks that Haman may have been a particularly obnoxious person obsessed with exalting himself, that the king had to command people to bow to him. But there's one person that won't. Look at verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow or show him respect, Mordecai's a Benjamite. He's not going to bow to an Amalekite descendant like this. So he was filled with rage, Haman was. He'd learned of Mordecai's nationality. He knew he was a Jew. So he decided it wasn't enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all Jews through the entire empire of Xerxes. To me, that seems like a little bit of an overreaction. Right? I mean, everybody's bound to him. Mordecai won't do it. And he goes, I'm not just going to kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill the 15 million people that Mordecai is associated with. I'm going to kill all of the Jews, because he won't bow to me. So Haman gets this idea, and he goes to Xerxes. He says, hey, Xerxes, got an idea. Doesn't tell him who it is. He goes, there's a people, there's a group of people underneath your reign, and they don't follow your laws. They don't listen to exactly what you want to say. And listen, if you let me wipe them out, I'll bring you money. And Xerxes goes, ooh, I like money. He goes, do whatever you want. 
do, I don't even, he doesn't even ask who it is. He says, do whatever you want. I just want more money. So Haman takes the king's signet ring and, and announces this decree in all of the land. He announces this decree, then in the, the next March, about 11 months from when this is happening, in the next March, the Jews are going to be decimated. If you are a neighbor of the Jew, you can kill them and take everything they own by law. It's fine. You can kill the Jews. This is the, the plot of Haman. He's obsessed with exalting himself. All he wants to do is be famous. He wants to be recognized. He wants to be powerful. He wants to be honored. He's filled with pride. Let's take a minute, and let me just ask you a simple question. What is pride? Like, what is pride? Pride, the best definition I can come up with, according to the Bible, the pride is concentration on the self. It's, it's full-blown concentration on the self. And C.S. Lewis takes it even further and he says it's ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. And this is Haman. Haman is maxed out on pride. It's endless ego calculations. He's always looking and saying, am I getting the thanks that I deserve? Am I getting appreciated here? How, how are people looking at me? Am I being regarded as a leader? How do I look? How does this make me look? And in everything that Haman goes about, he's always asking, what about me? What about me? It's this sleepless concentration on the self. But where does Haman start in this story? The first time Haman is mentioned in chapter 3, Haman is... The one that is elevated above all the other officials. He's, he's the right-hand man. He is the official that is next to the king. And what's, what's interesting, the last verse of chapter 2, I don't have it up here, but let me tell you about it. In the last verse of chapter, two, uh, last verse of chapter 3, excuse me, when the decree goes out that all the Jews, you're allowed to kill them, that they, they were going to decimate the Jews, what Haman and King Xerxes do, it says that while chaos went through Susa and people were unable to comprehend even what this decree was going to mean. It says that King Xerxes and Haman went to the top of the palace, relaxed, and had a drink. That's what they did. These guys are filled with pride and concentration on the self. Okay, so that's Haman. Now let me tell you about Mordecai. Mordecai, he's not at the top, he's at the bottom. He's a guard at the king's gate. And in order to tell you what happens in chapters 5 and 6, let me tell you what happened in chapter 2. And I don't have it up here, but, but you've got to understand this part. So right when Esther became the queen, Mordecai was this guard at the gate, and he heard two of the king's servants plotting to kill King Xerxes. He, he discovered this assassination plot. And so Mordecai having been there and heard this plot, told it to Esther. Esther told it to the other officials. They did some underground work and they found out, oh, the plot's real. They find these two guys that had this plot to kill Xerxes and they kill these two guys. But Mordecai, at that time, even though he was the one that kind of exposed the plot, gets no affirmation, no recognition, no honor. He's just kind of like the guy, the, 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 the forgotten middleman, essentially. Nobody thanks Mordecai for what he did. And when Haman releases that plan, all the Jews, you can kill them, Mordecai goes even further down. I mean, he is, look, look what it says. This is chapter 4, 
verse 1. It says, When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on burlap and ashes, he went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace while wearing clothes of mourning. So just, just pause for a minute and think about where these two guys are at. Haman is at the top, and he's full of pride. Mordecai is at his most humble moment in all of his life. He's not in the palace. He's outside the palace. They won't even let him into the palace, and he's wearing burlap and ashes. And Haman is in a robe on top of the tower, having a drink with the king, with really no concern of anybody else. There, there couldn't be more opposite in this moment. There couldn't be, if I, if I were to say, hey, which one of these guys at the moment is exalted? You would say Haman. Which guy has been humbled? You would say Mordecai. But remember what Jesus said? He said, try to exalt yourself. You can be humbled. Try to humble yourself. Hmm. I will lift you up. So Mordecai is out of the gate, outside the gate. He's got burlap and ashes all on his body. And he says, Esther, Esther, you're the queen. You've got to go in there. You've got to help us. Esther's scared at first. Mordecai goes, no, you've got to go in there and help us. And she goes, okay, I'll go in. And she goes into the king. She says, if I perish, I'll perish. She goes into the king. And the king extends this golden scepter that says, yes, you're allowed to meet with me right now. Talk about an ego trip. But the king's nice. And the king says, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you want, Esther? Anything for you, Esther. I love you, Esther. Esther says, come over to my house for a banquet. The king says, okay, just me? She goes, no, we need a third wheel. Bring Haman. So it's the king and Haman, and they come over to Esther's house that night for a banquet. And they're sitting there, and the king says, Esther, what do you want? Anything. I love you. You make your request. We're here for you. And Esther says, I want you to come back tomorrow night for another banquet. And the king goes, oh, okay. I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's kind of like throw pillows. It's like, ah. But okay, we can, do, we can do throw pillows. We can do another banquet. So the king, it's pretty good. And so the king says, all right, we'll come back. She goes, and Haman. We need Haman. The king says, okay. So this, look, look at what Haman does. Look at what this prideful, arrogant, self-centered person does. Haman was a happy man as he left the banquet. But when he saw Mordecai sit at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became... Furious. However, he restrained himself and went on home. Look what he does. Haman gathered together his friends and his wife and boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. He bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he'd been promoted all over, over all the other nobles and officials. And then Haman added, and that's not all. Listen to this, guys. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet she prepared for us. And she'd invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. And then he added, but this is all worth nothing. Look at this guy. He's bragging about everything he's got going in life. But he's just, he's got to find a way to exalt himself a little bit more. This is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting there at the palace gate. So Haman's wife's arrest and all his friends suggest, set up a sharpened pole 
that stands 75 feet tall, and in the morning ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. This pleased Haman, and the order of the pole set up. 75-foot pole. Haman at the top, seeking to show everybody just one more time, I'm in charge. I'm the one to be exalted. It's crazy. Like, he doesn't even really enjoy his job because one person doesn't think highly of him. That's pride. But God. Ooh, but God. Look what he does. That night. That night. They, they're setting up the pole in the middle of the night while that's happening. That night in the palace, the king had sleeping. Esther chapter 6. So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of history of his reign so it could be read to him. Also kind of prideful. In those records, he discovered an account of how, look at this, Mordecai had exposed the plot of Big Thana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had, a, they had a, uh, uh, plotted to assassinate the king. Remember this? Mordecai's the one that uncovered it. What reward did we ever give Mordecai for doing this, the king asked. Did we ever honor this guy? And his attendant said, nothing has been done for him. Then they hear somebody in the, in the court. So the king says, hey, who is that in the inner court or outer court? And as it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he had prepared. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman is out in the court. The king says, bring him in. So Haman came in and asked, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? And Haman thinks to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? Pride, unbridled, embodied in the person of Haman. He can't imagine the king thinking about honoring somebody else. His first thought is about himself. Who would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, great plan. This is Mordecai's plan for himself. If the king wishes to honor someone... He should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on it, on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over, listen, to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed all in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. This, this is the plan. Haman's, you know, this is fantasy land for Haman. He can't wait. The king's asking me to plan my own parade? Ho, ho, I've got ideas. Let's get an emblem on the horse's head. The king says, excellent. Quick, take the robes and the horse and do just what you said. Haman said, great, but do it for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace, leave nothing out as you have suggested. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai. Can you imagine? Placed him on the king's own horse, led him through the city square, shouting, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. I can't imagine he said it very loud. <laughs> this is what the king does. Afterward, Mordecai... Returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home, dejected, and what? Completely humiliated. Haman starts at the top, 
obsessed with exalting himself, totally concentrated on his own self, completely humiliated. Mordecai started in a burlap sack with ashes on his head, and he's riding on the king's horse. And that's not how it ends. At that banquet that night, Esther said, somebody made a plan to kill all of my people. And the king said, who would do such a thing? And she pointed at Haman. Haman had been sneaky about it. And King Xerxes, who's also very full of pride, he has Haman impaled on that same 75-foot pole that Haman had ordered to be put up. But it's important to note that it's not the pole that killed him. It was his pride that killed him. It was his incessant focus on himself. His constant need to be lifted up, regarded highly, exalted, thought highly of. All he could think about was himself. And this pride, it just made him a full-blown fool. I mean, Haman is, a, is an idiot. And it was his pride that made him an idiot. He was overwhelmed with concentration on the self. And the verse proves itself to be true that God doesn't ignore the proud, doesn't overlook the proud. He opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. What is the opposite of pride? What is the opposite of pride? Humility. So if pride is concentration on the self, humility is not concentrating on the self. You've probably heard it said this way, but humility isn't thinking of yourself less. It's, excuse me, thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So that means if pride is concentration on the self and humility is not concentrating on the self, then humility is definitely not sulking and thinking lowly of yourself because it's still thinking about yourself. You're still thinking about yourself in that scenario. So if you ever meet a truly humble person, if we ever meet a really humble person, we will not come away from that interaction going, wow, what a humble person. We will come away thinking, wow, that person was happy and he was remarkably interested in me or she was remarkably interested in me. This is what a humble person is, is like to be around. They're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about you. Humility is the complete opposite of pride. I want to read you three more verses. These are the last three verses in all of Esther. It's chapter 10. It's only three verses long. And it's about Mordecai. And it's about how Mordecai is the last thing we know about him. Check this out. Esther chapter 10, verse 1. King Xerxes imposed a tribute through his entire empire, even to the distant coastlands. His great achievements and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Media and Persia. Mordecai, the Jew, look at this. He became the prime minister with authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. He was very great among the Jews. Why? Because he promoted himself? No. They held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all of their descendants. The theme of Mordecai's life was not, look at me. It was, how can I help? Who can I serve? 
And the reason he's highly esteemed and the reason that he's ultimately promoted and exalted and lifted up is because he fought for the good of others and spoke up for the welfare of his descendants. He wasn't thinking about himself all the time. He was thinking about others. This is humility. And remember what Jesus said. Remember what Solomon and Peter and James said. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. You try to exalt yourself, you will be humble. And isn't it true in the story of Haman and Mordecai? Haven't the tables completely turned upside down? Because when Jesus said that, people thought, no, that's backwards. That's upside down. That's not how typically, that's not how everybody's doing it. If you want to get ahead, you got to kind of promote yourself a little bit around here. And Jesus said, no, it works the other way. And in the story of Haman and Mordecai, you can see that it's true, that it works the other way. While the world says, exalt yourself, promote yourself, get out there, show your best stuff. The Bible says, humble yourself, think about other people first. Don't wake up, this is the message to me. So if I'm talking to me, if I'm right there, I'm going, hey, Joel, don't wake up in the morning thinking about your day and how, the, how you can be happy and, and you can have a good day. Don't wake up thinking about that. Don't wake up and look at your calendar, Joel, and don't wake up and just think about how you can have a good day. Wake up in the morning and go, how can Morgan have a good day? How can your kids have a good day? How can your church have a good day? How can your neighbors have a good day? Wake up and stop thinking about yourself. Stop exalting yourself. Stop thinking about Joel. Stop thinking about what people think about you. Start thinking about other people. Somebody needs to slap me more often than they slap me about this. Because it, it just, if unchecked, it just kind of runs rampant in my life where it just, I just concentrate on myself so much. Let me read one more C.S. Lewis quote, and then I'll give, you, I'll give you one more kind of closing thought, something that God had kind of showed me about my own pride this week. This is, this is what C.S. Lewis said. It's just so true. Pride. Pride. Which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices, this is true, other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride, oh, pride. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. So all through the Bible, over and over, God detests pride. He hates pride. He opposes the pride. Question for you. Why do you think God hates pride so much? Why is pride so high on God's list of things that he detests? Why, why is it such a big deal? Here's what I believe. I believe that God hates pride so much because it's what keeps us from him. Pride is ultimately what keeps us from God. Because pride is really at the root of all of our sin. But not only that, pride is what keeps us from going back to God and asking for forgiveness. So it's this one-two punch, and God hates it. Because of our pride, we do all of the sinful things that we do. I'll explain that in just a second. But then it stops us from going back to God and saying, I'm sorry for that. In our own pride, we go, nah, probably not me. Not struggling with that. When we're bitter towards people, that's actually pride. Because what we're saying is, I would never do anything like that. 
And when we're unforgiving towards people, that's actually pride. We would never do something like that. Can you believe they would do that? When we worry, that's actually pride. Because we have a plan of how things should go. And it looks as though maybe things won't go just like how I want them to go. And so we begin to worry about what's going to happen. That's actually pride. When we gossip, that's actually pride. I've never been in a gossip circle where we're elevating another person. When I'm gossiping, when I'm in a gossip circle, having a conversation, we're talking, we're talking bad about somebody. We're, we're elevating ourselves. We're exalting ourselves in that conversation. It's pride. When we can't accept criticism or feedback, that's pride. I got to work on that one. We can't, when we get angry or we get sad, pride makes us a fool. We can't accept criticism. Racism is rooted in pride. It's, it's disgusting. All forms of abuse rooted in pride. Not liking rich snobs, that's rooted in pride. Think about it. You see somebody in Lululemon driving from New Albany, two Starbucks in hand, driving a BMW. How could they waste that money? How could they do it? It's me elevating my, my middle class self above them. It is. It's pride. It's pride. Every relationship fight I have is pride. Got an argument with Morgan on Thursday. Full-blown pride. I want to be right. I wanted, I wanted her to say, sorry, you're right, you're awesome, thanks for showing me how wrong I was. That's what I wanted her to say. It's pride. And pride is evil, it makes us a fool, and it eventually kills us. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I don't know exactly how, how pride may be manifesting itself in your life. Not sure. There's a lot of ways in which it does that. So I don't know what that is. But I'll bet, I'll bet that pride is coming to life somewhere. It's my sneaky suspicion. That pride might be coming to life somewhere. And I'll bet that if you, if you would take this, if you take God's word today and you go, okay, how do I, how do I apply this to my life? Try this out. In humility... In humility, ask one person, or if you're feeling extra humble, ask two. Hey, do you see any areas in my life where pride is making itself known? Do you see any, any way in my life that I'm just unaware of my own pride? That would be a humble thing for you to do, to ask that question somebody that knows you, and then you got to listen to what they say, right? If you just ask the question, then it, I don't, you're not going to make a whole lot of progress in the area of humility. Maybe they're onto something. Maybe if you ask that question, don't go home and make your spouse or roommate say, hey, do you have a question to ask me? <laughs> Take this. Look at Haman. Look at Mordecai. Concentration on the self, concentration on God and others. Go and say, hey, do you see any area in my life that pride might be in there creeping around that I'm unaware of? And then listen to them. Consider what they say. That would be a humble thing to do. It really would be. 
It really would be. The message would be, would be incomplete if I didn't just mention at the end the most humble person that ever lived, that being Jesus Christ, who left heaven as the king, the co-creator of the world, one might say. He left heaven, and Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself, he humbled himself, and became like a man, like me. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross, not for his sake, but for mine and for yours. And then, do you know how that passage ends? It says this, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. In the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not because he exalted himself, but because he humbled himself. God lifted him up. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ, this person who embodied humility, I just, my prayer all week would be that you would, would know this like person and humility of Jesus and that you would not let your pride keep you from coming to him. I hope that, that we as a church, myself the most, that we would believe in this upside-down way of thinking, that he who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled. That's how God said it works, and I believe him. And I saw it in Haman and Mordecai, and I hope you did too. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for the model of humility that you showed us. I pray, God, that you would expose in me areas of pride, because I don't want to live a prideful life, God. I want to live a life where I'm thinking about you and others. That one day, somebody might say that they were happy, or that, that, I, that I seemed happy, and that I was incredibly interested in them. I pray for our, our, the people in our church, myself included. I've got this question to ask today. Is there anything in my life? Is there any pride in my life? I am often very unable to see it in myself. I'm very quick to be able to see it in other people. But I'm unable to see it myself, God. So I admit that. And I need your help and the help of people that love me to help me to be more like you. And God, if you feel like lifting me up, I'll take it. But I just want to be humble. And I pray that over our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you were both challenged and encouraged today. For everything you want to know about Three Creeks Church, visit threecreekschurch.com.